1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read it and I'm kind of break down for us where we're going uh, in this upcoming year. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses uh, 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9. And it reads as follows, verse one. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the church said, amen. You all may be seated. <clears throat> uh, we're beginning this series um, really spanning throughout the bulk of this year. We'll be walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, the series is really titled uh, with a... Uh, a tagline for us that we believe uh, encapsulates the identity of who God has called us to be, not only just as Cornerstone, but the church as a whole, and it's called Being Built Together. In this series, in the upcoming months, really January and February, we're going to do what we did last year, which is really just focus on uh, kind of our seven core values as a church. Uh, those who have been here, you know that we uh, last year kind of implemented a, a three-year vision script that's kind of outlaying and giving direction to where we believe God is leading us. And so last year, we did a core value series called For the Culture, where we just kind of topically address what is each of these, what do we hope God, or how do we hope that God would use each of these core values to really uh, ingra uh, ingrain and um, press into the DNA of who we are as a family. And this year, we're going to do something similar. However, uh, our core value series is kind of going to be a series within a series. And so uh, if you want to know what this series or the purpose of this series is, is, uh, is for us to reconstruct, is, is about reconstructing faith and family. Uh, this was really birthed from um, just looking at the landscape of Christianity, looking at the landscape of our church and all God has done and all the changes that we've gone to and realizing that as God has brought new people into the family, uh, that people bring with them uh, all different types of experiences, all different types of hardships, all different types of hurts, all different types of theological framework. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that as a family, we're all on the same page. And this is not about uh, just groupthink to where we all uh, agree and, um, uh, on everything, but it is to say that there are certain things that as a family, as a local church, that we all need to embrace and agree with as long as we can see this in Scripture. So today, our first core value that we're going to be focusing on is biblically rooted. We listen and obey, and that should be up on the screen. And what I want for us to do is I want us to read that together. I'll start us off. One, two, three. The word of God is our most valuable asset. It's the constant determiner for all decisions and fuels a holistic approach to caring for and serving others. Our commitment to it prioritizes biblical truth over trends and personal preference. Amen. I really want us that if you are a member of Cornerstone Church, I really want us to take seriously uh, a memorizing these core values. Why? And you may say, well, why is that important? Because these core values are what's going to shape and help us say yes to the things that God is calling us to do and no to the things that may be good things, but aren't things that God has specifically given for us to do as a church. Yeah. Amen. And so when you are wondering what, what, what when, and when God is giving you ideas about how you can serve and how you can engage, man, man, what we want you to do is already have a mental note in your mind about the DNA and the values that we as a church have so that that can be the filter that takes place before you bring those things 
to our attention. Amen? Let's get started. Being built together. I tagged this text, being built together and rooted in a divine calling. Being built together, rooted in a divine calling. The one main idea for us today, church, and one thing that you're going to see kind of woven all throughout this series is this, this main point, that we belong so that we might become like the one we will one day meet. We belong so that we might become like the one that we will one day behold. We find the origin story of the Corinthian church in Acts 18, where we see that Apostle Paul had been, been on the grind for some time. And Apostle Paul, he, he leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth, and immediately he comes across this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and, and, and recognizes that they share the same occupation that he does as a tent maker. So during the week, Paul, uh, Paul's vocation is he's working as a tent maker with this couple, but then on the weekends, he's preaching in the synagogue to both the Jews and the Gentiles. After uh, some time of kind of toiling and laboring, uh, Paul uh, gets some resistance from the Jews, and God makes it clear that in Corinth, Paul, what I'm calling you to do is to simply focus on reaching the Gentiles. And so that's what Paul does, and uh, he continues to travel and comes in contact with this man who the Bible says is a worshiper of God named Titus Hustos. And this very man's house was right next to one of the synagogues. Uh, God's providence is that he made it easy for Paul that he didn't have to travel too far, but he could just step out the front door and walk next door and begin to proclaim the excellencies of our God. Well, Paul meets the leader of this very synagogue, and the Bible says that, that not only did that leader come to faith in Christ, but his entire household did. And then we see this picture of the gospel spreading throughout the city, one by one, people coming to faith, so much so that, man, the Jews weren't just mad, they got big mad against Paul. And so in their anger, what they do is they, they form this mob of people and they say, man, we're going um, 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 to bring Paul before the Roman authorities and accusing him of doing something wrong and stirring up mess within the city. And so they do that. The senator Galileo uh, stands before Paul and they hear the case against Paul in which immediately he dismisses it and says, man, I've got better things to do. Let this man go. And Paul is released in that moment. What's interesting, though, is that the leader of a synagogue who raised accusation against Paul was Sosthenes. So this man, Sosthenes, a leader of the synagogue, at that moment where Paul is released, uh, uh, the Jewish mob takes Sosthenes out from the courthouse, brings him to the courthouse steps, and they beat, him, they beat that brother down. Now, you may say, well, well that's, that's kind of crazy. Well, what's crazy about it is if, if you were to take a man out of the police station and then beat him up in front of the police station, you would imagine that there would be some type of justice that took place. Well, what the Bible says is that Galileo, the senator, knew of this, and it, he didn't care. See, you and I, we know a little bit about insurrections taking place on government properties, and there still being injustice uh, that remains, right? Um, but, but, but here's what's so crazy even about that. The text continues, and he says... Um, Paul, in chapter 1, he alludes to, man, this letter is written by Paul and Sosthenes. So what took place? God told Sosthenes, look, Sosthenes, I'm going to let you catch this fade one more time, but what's going to happen is, is that I'm going to take you from being an enemy of the gospel to now part of God's family and make you a ministry partner to Paul. I could stop right there and preach a whole sermon about the power of the gospel to take enemies of the gospel and make them friends of the gospel. Because it shows that the power of the gospel is irresistible if God would aim his love at you. Corinth, I've got to take some time unpacking this so that we understand where we're going, so bear with me. That Corinth was a wealthy and celebrated city. It was conveniently local, uh, situated for imports and exports. And so after Paul leaves Corinth, these false teachers come in, not necessarily coming into the church, but seeking to influence the culture of the church. So Paul uh, uh, is completely aware of what's taking place. He understands that this city, uh, the city of Corinth, they prided themselves in the splendor and magnificence of their address. 
um, being puffed up with empty loftiness of speech. They looked upon Paul's simplicity and even the gospel itself with contempt. In this city, it was filled with these vices of luxury and pride and covetousness and vanity and insatiable appetite for greed. All of these things made up Corinth because the who's who found themselves in the city. Now, you may say that... Um, Ah, well, how does Corinth, like, well, why is this important? Well, I want, I want to break this down for us um, to help us understand that Atlanta is not so different from Corinth. You see, you don't have to be here long enough to have seen the idols of our city. Uh, you don't have to go too far to recognize that Mercedes-Benz Stadium sits within, an, uh, uh, sits within an arm's length throw of one of the poorest communities in our neighborhood or in our city. All of the greatest talent, all of the greatest professional athletes, all of the who's who in Christian culture and community, they all assemble in this place in walking distance from poverty, yeah. suffering. Yeah. Uh, uh, I can go a little bit further. Um, um, you can know that Atlanta may not have been filled with temples where ladies serve men um, in the areas of pleasure. There's kids here, so let's get my drift a little bit. But we got places where people go for wings and other indulgences. Atlanta holds up the reputation of having one of the largest and busiest airports, and yet it also, in turn, is one of the top five cities for sex trafficking of little boys and girls. In this very neighborhood, we see the clashing of both the haves and the have-nots. We see the clashing of those who, who have somewhat of an affection or um, an interest in God, but yet hold up the idolatry or the idols of both ethnicity and their blackness and, and, and who God has made them to be or who they think God has made them to be as miniature gods. Corinth is, Atlanta is not so different from Corinth, and uh, I, 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 what I hear God saying even now, especially in areas like this, is the same reverberating uh, question of, that Isaiah got, of whom shall I send and who will go for us? That, that, that question still rings loudly as we look at neighborhoods that do not have or have not, uh, or have not had people willing to insert themselves into the fabric of the community to spread the hope of Jesus Christ all because of its lack of comfort and convenience. Paul opens his address with these two words, Paul called, and I want to stop there. The very first point is this. Um, when we talk about our slogan or our tagline for this sermon, I want you to think of being in terms of we belong to God. Being in terms of we belong to God. Paul called. This is where all of our stories as believers begins. That Paul seeks to emphasize for the church in Corinth, but also emphasize for us that the most significant day or thing to happen in your life is not your birthday. You may have been born, and we're grateful that you are born that day, but what good is it being born physically if you remain dead spiritually? Yes, 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 we are, we, we, that is a meaningful day, but what Paul wants to put in contrast for us or put, uh, or elevate above that is that um, there is a point in which every true believer's life where you receive the calling of God to himself, that we're not talking about going to church. We're not talking about going to a Bible study even. We're talking about there was a moment that was undeniable for you where you were lost in your sins, where you were going about your business the way that you thought your life should turn out, and God arrested you with his love, convicted you of your sin, and you turned your life away from those things and towards him. We're talking about relationship here, y'all. We ain't talking about religious activity. That's not what God has called us into. Paul is saying, I want you to understand calling in terms of, of you belonging to me. We're going to get more into uh, uh, breaking that up, but, but I want to speak to the reality that sometimes when we open the Bible, and probably when we read this chapter, we kind of read through probably the first nine verses, and we didn't pause for a moment when we heard that word called. Sometimes God is, he uses certain language that is meant for us 
to really pause for a moment, let that soak down deep in us, and not to skirt past too quickly. That's what this word is called. And here's two errors in our understanding of the gospel that I see dominant and prevalent that I've had to battle with from time to time. But there's two gospel errors that I think are being implied here that we need to look at. The first one being that God's first words, that I want you to understand that God's first words to you or about you are not words of displeasure and disapproval. That's not his first words to you. That the gospel of Jesus Christ does not start with God addressing our sins or how much we've fallen short. That's not what we see in the Bible. No, no. God's first words to us is him revealing himself as good, as holy, and letting us know about his good intended purposes for us. How do I know this? Genesis 1, chapters 1 and 2, God says, in the beginning, I existed. Out of my existence, I create. And everything that I create is good. Even when he creates man, he says, it's good. What wasn't good was that man was was alone. So God, even in God's goodness, he sees it's not good for Adam to be alone, so I'm going to provide another good thing for him. You see, if we believe that about God, if we believe that about the message of the cross, what's going to happen? Here's what's going to happen. That if you think that the Bible or God only exists to tell you about all of the ways in which you've fallen short, all of the ways that God is displeased with us without first revealing his nature, his goodness, his holiness, his love for us, what ends up happening is that you will always interpret God's correction as abuse. And not healing. For some of us, our daddy wounds, they don't allow God to even correct us because all we, anytime somebody tells us something about ourselves, we get defensive. Because we weren't loved well, uh, loved in such a way to where we had security and we had the ability to receive some type of correction that every human being gets because we're not perfect. And so we interpret God saying to us, hey, this is how I want my people to live, and we reject it automatically because we refuse to believe that God could love me in spite of my faults and in spite of my failures. Shame does not draw people closer. It only keeps people distant and in the dark. I was at the barbershop this past week, and uh, my barber, she's a, uh, a, a female who's in a same-sex relationship. So over the last five months or so, I've just been praying, God, give me an opportunity to tell her about Jesus. She's asked me about her, my occupation. Um, I t- she knows that I'm a pastor. And for most part, we've just kind of talked about culture. We just kind of talked about kind of chewing the fat um, and things of that nature. But coming into the new year, uh, we start talking about our goals and the things that, man, what are we, what are we expecting for this year? What, what are things that we want to change? And one of the things that she says to me, she says, man, I really am just trying to do this God thing again. I'm really I'm just trying to figure out, man, what does it look like to follow the Lord? What does it look like to, to press in? And, but, but her, the directions that she has, the roadmap, the only roadmap that she has is to attend church and try to read scripture. So I asked her, I said, man, like, what's your church, what's your, what's your religious background to what she says? Well, I grew up Christian. Um, and so I asked her, I said, well, what does being a Christian mean to you? So she kind of starts first and she's like, starts to answer the question, but has to pause. And she's like, that's a good question. Nobody has ever asked me that, and I really don't have an answer. And so I'm, you know, I'm in that moment, and I'm just kind of like giving one of them Kevin Hart's bang, 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 bada boom, um, because I'm like, God, you, you answer prayer. And this is a clear open door to start telling her about, you know what, I grew up in a similar way. I grew up calling myself a Christian because that's all that. I knew to call myself in the black community and probably in even other ethnicities, especially in the South. All you know is I'm a Christian because I exist. But, but it wasn't until I started to have to, I had somebody sit down and start to share with me about what it really, who Jesus really is, what Jesus has really done for me. What the first words that God, that I heard from God, that he shared with me, that, that resonated, that man, you're telling me that the creator of the universe, that he loves me? And, and, and what I told her, I said, man, you know what? It's not just about simply 
um, believing a bunch of facts about God. You know, it's about encountering him and experiencing power that transforms our lives instantaneously, but also over time. And as she's listening, you know, I'm, I'm sharing. I'm kind of like, man, if you're a black man and you're at a barber, this is a very vulnerable situation. Because I can share the gospel with her and she doesn't like something I say, man. She could just jack me right up. And so I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, this, I don't want to be persecuted right now. I, I've got to preach on Sunday. But she's listening intently. She says, you know what? I, I feel even shameful desiring to want to know God. How could he love me? The church has been so judgmental against gay people. All I've ever heard is that homosexuality is an abomination to God. I said, but those aren't the first words that God has for me. That's not the starting place. If you're going to understand Christianity, I got to start first with God. I got to start first with who he is. I got to start first with helping set some foundational work for you to um, not be introduced to God on sound bites that have been fueled by bias and prejudice. There's this thing called the theory of first impressions. So many people have been introduced by, to God off of sound bites, not for who he truly is. It's in those moments that you stop and you begin to think about, man, there's so many people who just don't know who God actually is, but they've dismissed him because he's been inaccurately described, misinterpreted, and miscommunicated about. So for you and I as believers, that's the fuel for evangelism. That's the fuel that you do know who God is. That you've learned about him, not just through the Bible and teaching and instruction, but intimately and personally. And that God would so generously give you and I the opportunity to just take a little Lysol, a little Windex, and over time spray a little bit and spray a little bit and and work through the power of the Holy Spirit and just scrub away some of the misconceptions and unclarity around who this God actually is. I, I want to challenge this church because I feel like um, if somebody talked poorly about you or your family member, you would be more angry in defending them than you are people who talk wrongly and angrily about the God who saved you. This isn't about getting into arguments. No, that's not what I'm talking about. It's about contending for the faith. It's about loving people enough to say, I'm going to inconvenience myself to take the time at a barbershop, at the grocery store, on my way to work, whatever place it is that God would give me opportunity to say, God, I welcome the disruptions of life if you would give me an opportunity to plant some seeds, to water those seeds, to clear up some things, that people are holding to, that the enemy is just allowing them, just keeping in their brain to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work and say, no, 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 come to me, draw closer. Cat Williams said to Shannon Sharp this past week, <laughs> he said, this is how I know y'all, we, we're on the same page, you're on the same page. <laughs> he said to Shannon, um, he had a little bit of, you know, liquid in his system, but he said to Shannon, he says, Shannon, um, it's not becoming of you. You have a, you have a, um, <laughs> you, you, you have this aversion to, um, losers, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, you have this aversion to losers that is unbecoming of you. That may be true of Shannon Sharp. That may be true of Cat Williams. That may be true of some of us. But what I want you to know is that that's not true of God. 
God welcomes those that are in the world that are considered losers to say, no, no, I see something more in you. He opens his arms to the brokenhearted and says, no, the qualification for you even to come and know me is your brokenness. That's what I want. That's, that's who I am. And the only way, reason he can do that is because he has the power to take the broken and to build them up to a place to where he can get the glory from their lives. It's the goodness of God. The goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Second thing, misconception, that God is more concerned with what you can do for him than you being with him. I can't tell you how hard it is at times to not get caught up in activity. To not think that, man, I'm, I'm to try and try to earn God's love through religious works, through trying harder to read scripture than trying harder to pray more, to doing all those different things as if God is, is holding something from us that he hasn't freely given to you already. Notice the sentence structure here that in this introductory verse, he starts first with God's possession of him as one called before he gets to the purposes God would have for him flowing from that very calling. He says, I've been called as an apostle, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Jesus is in the building. Martha's running, scrambling. Oh, man, Jesus is here. Let me, let me try to be the best hospitable host that I can be. And Mary's sitting at the feet just listening, resting, learning, experiencing. In the Bible, indicatives always come before imperatives. And promises undergird and precede the commands. What does that mean in plain language? Why? It's because our identity defines our responsibilities. It is our identity. It's who we are. It's who God has made us to be. It's who, what he said about us that informs the responsibilities or tasks or purposes that he may have for our lives. But in the same way that there are misconceptions, there are also some truths that we need to learn. One, I've already mentioned that we've been called into belonging. And in that, and in that word called, what we've got to do is we've got to hold up both in our minds and in our hearts the implications of what God had to do in order to call us. The first one being that in that word called, the infinite wisdom of God is being demonstrated. That God chose Paul, Paul didn't choose God. There was nothing that Paul could do to convince God to show himself to be worthy to be chosen. No, it was God's wisdom alone that set his love on Paul to say, you're going to be mine. And that's not only true about Paul, but that's true of all of us. There ain't none of us who are seeking after God. And if you do say you are seeking after God, you are lie because Romans 3 tells us that no one seeks after God. You didn't love God on your own. God had to move in your heart in such a way to cause you to love him. There's no credit that you and I can take for us being called by God. And he does that for the purpose so that we can't boast in anybody but him. God doesn't share credit with his people. God takes all the credit. Everything that we have, even if you share the gospel with somebody and they come to faith, it's not even because of the words that you share. We see the infinite wisdom. We see the absolute power of God, that God reached into a desolate place, reached into desolate circumstances to have you for himself. Take a minute to think about what God saved you out of. We forget our testimony, y'all. We want to come in here and, 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 and give some revisionist history to how messy our lives did in order for us to look good. But when we do that, we're robbing God of how far and how deep he had to reach you to snatch you out of darkness and bring you into his light. God deserves the glory, not you. Don't diminish what God took you out of and what he saved you from because you're afraid of what people may think. I like ugly stories. I like mess. I don't want to be a church that's as sexy and clean. Where's the power in that? Read the Bible, y'all. There ain't no clean people except for Jesus. But our calling also, I got to move on. Our calling also includes 
our commission, and Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that there is divine purpose attached to your relationship with God. Um, hear this, when he says the will of God, what he's telling us is that God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. Sometimes when you're walking and you're, 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 you're trying to follow and you're in the will of God, uh, everything around you, including what people say, will try to convince you that you're outside of the will of God. That you're doing something wrong. Why would you move across the country to go and be a part of that church plan? Why would you put your family through that? Why would you go into, move into a hard and difficult neighborhood? No, no, no. God wants you to be safe. No, 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 no. God is a God who said, I'll call you into difficult and hard situations, but I want you to know the only assurance that you're going to have for security is my presence. Guys, we go through this book. I'm going to be honest with y'all. As we go through this book, you've read 1 Corinthians. Prayerfully, most of y'all, y'all members of the church, y'all already kind of does some like pre-work and y'all worked through 1 Corinthians. I'm going to tell you, there's going to be some messiness that we're going to see. And some of us in here, we're going to hear about some cases. We're going to hear about some things going on in the church. And we're going to question, man, I don't even know if them jokers is real believers. There's some stuff that makes you cringe. Because when we talk about God building up his church, God says that the end result is where we got to hold in. We got to hold up before our eyes at all times the end result of what God's doing and what he has promised, that there will be a day that the church is without stain and without blemish. This is his bride. Sometimes we think that we love Jesus' church more than Jesus loves the church. Sometimes we're shocked at sin as if the church isn't made up of sinners that have been redeemed by grace. I just want to ask the question, how many of us have gotten off track in our walks with Jesus at times? Am I the only one? How many of us have allowed career goals, pleasure, traveling the world, financial desires, relationships distract us from our relationship with God and his people. Those things are not bad things, but the enemy's crafty. The enemy is so crafty that he can put a good thing and a good desire in your life, convince you to devote yourself to it, and then, and, and then stand by the wayside and say, oh, I'm going to leave. I, I, I enjoy watching believers pursue things that are good but are not the things that God's called them to. If you're prospering in every other area of your life, but you're not faithful to the things that God has explicitly said in Scripture that all believers are called to? You may think you're in, good pl- in a good place. That's what the enemy does. He wants you to think that you're on safe ground. He wants to think that there's no danger around. I guarantee if you had spiritual eyes, you could look around that corner and just see that lion ready to devour you. This ain't to beat nobody up, man. I've had to repent over this last year because I found that my self-soothing or coping mechanism was scrolling on Instagram. Binging on Netflix. And I convinced myself I deserve it because I work hard and I've been through a lot. He's crafty. He's crafty. But here's what God is building. I'm going to move quick. Here's what God is building. He says, you are the church of God at Corinth. He's given us a new name. He's given us, or actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. He's made us a new people. You may ask, why does Paul, why does Paul tell the church that they are the church? Because oftentimes culture can find its way into the church to where we start looking more Corinthian or more Atlantan than we do Christian. You are the church of the living God, y'all. I want everyone to say this with me. You are sacred to me. That's what God says. That's what God has done for you. He's made you sacred. Now, in a, in a day and time, especially for young folks, where we don't understand 
sacredness. We didn't grow up in the church. We left certain churches. We don't, we don't get that really. What it means to be sacred, but it means to be set aside for divine purposes. And that should encourage us to be very cautious and careful in how we criticize the church. The church is not above criticism by any means. But if all you do is criticize and you don't contribute, you have partnered with not with God, but with his enemy. Uh, uh, It's easy to be critical of the church and not contribute to it. It's easy to be critical of leaders and show no commitment to helping them grow as the leaders that God has put in place and called to be. It is also easy for us to come to church and yet not actually act like the church in our everyday lives. That's the easy work. Anybody could do that. But if God has saved you and he has, uh, has made you a part of this family, what he's wanting you to understand is he's wanting to call you up to be who he's called you to be, the church of God, the, of, the, of the living God. Let me put that in more plain language. As a Christian, if you are more black than you are believer, then you've missed it. If you are more white or Asian or Latino, whatever it is, if that is the culture that you embody more than you embody the values and the beliefs of Jesus Christ, we've missed it. You see, uh, culture uh, as, is defined as an integrated system of beliefs, values, customs, and institutions which binds society together and gives it a sense of identity, dignity, security, and continuity. Uh, Continuity. So when we talk about culture and God creating culture, we're not talking about God wanting to produce this bland, colorblind version of himself. That's not what we're talking about. E.C. McCauley says it best. He says that God's vision for his people is not for the elimination of ethnicity to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness. Instead, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures united by faith in his son as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. This expansiveness is unfulfilled unless the differences are seen and celebrated, not as ends unto themselves, but as particular manifestations of the power of the Spirit to bring forth the same holiness among different peoples and cultures for the glory of God. The beauty in what God is building is that who can claim to unite a former KKK member and a Black Panther and a person who was part of the Black Panther Party? Who can claim the ability to bring a white person who grew up in Jim Crow South to love a Negro who grew up, whose ancestors were their very slaves, and yet they love each other in such an authentic and genuine way? God removed the dividing wall of hostility and made it possible for us as his people to love each other. But not only that, he's given us a good name. He's given us a new name. He says that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. Uh, I I know someone in the Bible who's been given a a new name before. Uh, Jacob, if you're familiar with Jacob. Jacob is a man who, who from birth, he he came out the womb holding on to his brother's heel. Jacob spent most of his life under the shadow of his brother's birthright, the, the firstborn. He spent most of his life fighting for attention, fighting for the affection of his father, striving for all of these things because, man, he just, and it was never good enough. The Bible talks about how Jacob at one day, uh, Jacob, uh, by the help of his mother, deceived his, his slightly blind father into passing on the birthright of his older brother that belonged to him. Jacob's name meant supplanter, usurper. And and in that moment, Jacob was acting out of his identity. But it's not too much further down the line where Jacob finds himself uh, in the middle of the night wrestling with this figure, this image of a man who, who he's just fighting with until daybreak. And the Bible recalls that Jacob, in that moment, the man says, let go of me, man. It's about to be, it's about, uh, the sun's about to rise to where Jacob says, you know what? No, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go until you bless me. And he's doing this with the hip dislocated. And it's in that moment where the man says, what is your name? He says, Jacob. 
And then he says, no, today your name will be Israel, for you have wrestled with God and man and succeeded. Church, he's given you a, good, a new name. For some of your life, the only words that you've heard about yourself is, may not be deceiver, it may be liar, cheater, adulterer, loose, addict, thief, abuser, scandalous, you name it. Yeah, you've made some mistakes. Yeah, you've gotten some things wrong, even as you follow Jesus, but let me tell you today that he's given you a good new name. He says that, no, you are sanctified and you are saints. I love this because it just, it just evokes this type of eagerness and emotion within me because it reminds me that well before Paul gets to any of the problems going on in the church, he wants to remind them of who they are. He wants to be reminded that they are holy, that they've been made holy, that they've been set aside for God's purposes, that they have been dedicated to God in such a way that regardless of what you confront or experience in your life, the ugliness or the lowliness parts of your walk with Jesus, God has not given you a different name. You are sanctified. You are holy. You are set apart. We've got to be comfortable with realizing that no matter what we go through, there'll be times where we look at our lives and be like, man, I'm an absolute mess right now. And now we've got to remind ourselves, but guess what? I'm his mess. His commitment hasn't changed. His love hasn't changed. How he sees me hasn't changed. But not only that, he's made us a family. Bear with me, we'll be out of here in six minutes. He's made us a family. He says, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord's, their Lord and ours, how many of you have been traveling and you've just kind of been outnumbered by people who don't look like you? And then as you're moving, you kind of like come across somebody that looks like you and's familiar. And you don't even have to know them, but you just give the passing head nod like, what's up? And you may be at the lunch table and you're like, man, I don't know none of these folks. But then you see somebody that looks like you and you're like, hey, man, can we sit with y'all? Like, y'all, we good? And you just start building that type of relationship. It may be temporary. It may last. But there's a familiarity of like, man, we share something together. Paul is saying, no, I didn't just save you so that you can just be comfortable in your autonomy, but I've saved you to embrace community with my family. I've given you brothers and sisters all across the world. Y'all, we've got to understand this thing about our story, that we, that, that, that God's plan and who we are as a church, ain't it? It's not. We are one piece of that. So you may have been comfortable growing up in a reformed camp where you all share the same theology and the same perspectives and thoughts, but guess what? That is just one part of God's family. You may have grown up with a charismatic background, whether it be Kojic or Pentecost, whatever it may be, and you've been comfortable with just being around people that think like you and see things the same way, but guess what? That's just one part of God's family. And if we think that we've got everything we need because we've been in close proximity and had accessibility to one way of thinking and seeing God, then we're missing out. We're stunted. At some point, somebody's got to reach across the lines and say, man, I don't see things the way that you see them, but let's talk. Let's wrestle. Let's allow iron to sharpen iron. Let's not demonize other people simply because they differ in their theological convictions. Y'all can look at your own lives and realize you don't believe certain stuff that you, probably this year, that you believed maybe two or three years ago. But you are just as dogmatic and just as convinced that this was true only to find out that it wasn't. Lastly, I gotta go. Together, togetherness persevering with one another as we prepare to meet our Lord, verses 4 through 9. Our story is leading us somewhere. Paul is like, no, I want you to understand you belong. I want you to understand what God is building, but I want you to understand that we're doing this thing together. Verses 4 through 9, he's thanking God for the church. He's thanking God for the church. And the only thing that I could think about when I was reading these verses is what the church actually needs. 
We don't need a flashier program. We don't need even more money. Yes, yes, we want, to, we want God to bring resources in so we can do ministry. But we don't, we don't need all of that simply to do what God's called us to do. We don't need even the brightest and the most gifted in order to accomplish God's purposes in this world. Yes, he gives believers who have good gifts. Yes, he, he does that and praise God for that. But in a culture that is celebratized, every single thing, we think that God can't do his work unless the best preacher or best gifted leader is in the front leading the charge. What we need is to cry out to God for greater grace. Paul's laying this out, man. He's just laying this out for us. He's saying, no, no, no. I see that God has given grace to you. What type of grace, you may ask? He says, man, verse 5, grace to be fruitful and effective in every way. Verse 7a, grace to have everything that we need to be faithful. 7b, grace to live in anticipation of his return. How many of us wake up every, every single morning, open our eyes and say, man, maybe this is the day that the Lord would come back. Maybe this is the day that God's going to crack the skies. He's going to ride on in. It, maybe this is the day. Do we, are we eager for that? Does that eagerness shape the way that we live right now, though? Verse 8a, grace to endure into the end. The word I just kept hearing throughout the series was perseverance. Perseverance. I can't finish my race without y'all. You can't finish your race without other people. Our job together is to, for God to grace our family in such a way to where I don't just say, yeah, I read the church covenant, but I say, no, I'm going to live that out. I'm going to commit to that. Talked about it, man. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. Coming to church once or twice a month ain't going to cut it. Coming to church once, and once or twice a year ain't going to cut it. You can't convince me that your affections for Jesus are growing. You can't convince me that you're being obedient to the one another verses that God has given all believers, especially in the church family, to live out. You can't convince me of that. I've yet to see somebody who stands on the outskirts of church who says, I'm going to come and go as I please, and yet there's no intimacy, there's no love for other people, there's no kindness, there's no, you, you just hang out with people. And even when you're with Christians, y'all don't even talk about Jesus. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm coming into 2024, y'all, and I'm just, I ain't trying to just, just, just pow, 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 but what I'm saying is, y'all, God's called us to more. Not only that, 9 and 8, 8, 8 being and, and 9. He says that, man, he will strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You will call by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. I want y'all to understand what he's saying here. I've, I've been in the place where people who love Jesus were at the place of breathing their last breath. I've witnessed it, and I've seen what it's like, even for strong Christians, to experience fear in that moment. They've, they've lived years and years being like, no, I know where I'm going. I know I'm going to be with Jesus. But in that moment, the temptation of fear comes over them. But something happens when they realize that the loving God that they gave their life for is the same God who says that when you come to see me, you're going to be blameless. That my love for you cast out fear. What does that mean? That means that when you stand before God as a Christian, there is no stain of sin that is going to mar the righteousness that God has already given you. There is nothing that God is going to be able to pull up and say, you know what? No, no, no. This is what you did. No, the blood of Jesus has washed us white as snow. He 
says blameless. This means that we can't, we ain't held accountable for the stuff that we did. Because Jesus died in our place for those things. And he's given us his life and his righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees his son. When you start getting to that middle age or what people say middle ages, you can't help but to start wondering, getting closer, getting closer, getting day by day, it's getting closer. And I could get to that place where I'm like, man, let me just be frantic and let me just try to do more and, and all those different things. Or we can just say, say that differently. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. One day, I'll see him. That's where our story's leading us. One day, I'll see him. I'll be with him. Only the Holy Spirit of God can give you that desire. He gives us grace. As we go through the rest of this series, I want us to just wrestle with that. What grace are you in need of? Grace to endure, grace to keep on believing, grace to love, grace to fight, grace to just live out what you already know, grace to serve. What, what, what grace are you in need of? He gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've accomplished and all that you've been for us, Lord, and all that you've promised and committed to being for us. Uh, Lord, only you are a God who keeps every single one of his words. Only you are trustworthy. Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, that even as we sit here with your spirit, deal with our hearts, Lord. I'm thankful that we don't have to wait for a new year to be a new us that you give that invitation every single moment and every single day, that we can trust in you, that we can turn to you, that we don't have to sit in a church on Sunday morning and hear a sermon in order to call out to you to save us and to enter into a relationship with you. But I pray that we would enter into a season of consecration as a church, that we would know that in our position, in our status, that we've been made right with Christ, that we have all of the acceptance and love and the perfect life that he's given us. But I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is to start pulling and tugging and bringing freedom to your people. Freedom. Father, with the power of God, release the snares and the strongholds over your people's lives, Lord. I watched a movie last night, and the guy said, man, there's a sound to freedom. There's a sound that when you've been set free, that you can't help but shout hallelujah to God. And I pray that we as your people, that we would you'd be reminded of the jubilation that comes in knowing that you called us. You called us, Lord. You called us. We are known by you. We are loved by you. You've given us your commitment. And to that, we say thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.